Hello, everyone, and welcome to Staffer, the show about political staffers and their lives before, during, and after politics. I'm your host, Jim Papa, a partner at Global Strategy Group. Our guest today is Katie Fallon, who started her political career in 2005 when she worked as policy director at the Democratic Senatorial Campaign Committee. She held many roles in government and politics after that, ultimately leading to the White House, where she served as assistant to the president and head of legislative affairs for President Obama. I talked with Katie on July 22nd, remotely, of course. At that time, Katie was executive vice president and global head of corporate affairs at Hilton. Since that time, she has taken on a new role at McDonald's as their chief global impact officer. I hope you enjoy our conversation. Katie, welcome to Staffer. Thank you, Jim. It's great to be here. Thank you so much for inviting me into this conversation with you. No, I'm uh, more than um, happy to do it. And we're really elated to have you on the show today because your background is incredible. What you, the work you're doing today is incredible. Um, and I'd like to give our listeners uh, uh, you know, a little bit of visibility into how you got to where you are today and what you've done in your career and kind of what you take from it. Uh, so let me start with the beginning. You grew up in a suburb of Cleveland, Ohio called Rocky River. Uh, you were the I second did, yeah. of eight kids. Well, tell us. Tell us about Rocky River and what it was like growing up in your family. Well, Jim, I'm very lucky. I had a you know, very happy suburban childhood in a house filled with a lot of built-in playmates and teammates. Um, all seven of my brothers and sisters and I are you know, pretty close in age, and we were very competitive with each other as little kids from you know, pick up football games in the backyard to Yahtzee tournaments and, um, you know, talent shows. And, you know, like all big families, we had our share of conflicts and fights. And I found myself sort of perfecting my peacemaking skills at a young age in our house. Um, We were all Catholic schooled for most of our childhood. My parents were both very involved in the Catholic church. And um, I think in many ways, the church at that time, you know, shaped my politics and um, my family's politics, you know, with the right to life movement at the forefront um, of the Catholic Church's mission in the in this you know late seventies, eighties across across the eighties. Um, my dad supported all eight of us on a five figure salary for most of my upbringing, which is amazing when you think back, uh, uh, you know, about how you know parents were able to do that not too long ago. Um, he has been in the um, collection business uh, for four decades. And so he got to be pretty adept at navigating student loan borrowing and negotiating tuition reductions for for large family enrollments. Um, my mom had the harder job of the two. She was keeping us all healthy and productive and, and sane in an, um, a small house. And um, I do believe that, you know, my politics were for the most part, largely shaped by, you know, my parents and my upbringing and that, you know, so that religious anchor that we had in that, in the Catholic church and Catholic school until I got to college and left Rocky River, Ohio. Um, I went to college at the University of Notre Dame um, and it was there in, in my, you know, my liberal arts curriculum that I started to think more critically about my own views and my own beliefs. Um, And I remember reading Man of the House, my senior year. Do you remember that book, Jim? Tip O'Neill's memoirs. I have not read it. Um, It's a good one. You should go back and and see if you can find it. Um, I remember reading that my senior year in college and telling myself, you know, that's the kind of politician I want to be when I grow up. But it it really wasn't until I came back from two years abroad um, from graduate school that I officially admitted that I was more aligned on issues and values with Democrats. Um, And it was, you know, helpful to be going through that self-reflection while out of the country and you know far removed from all the political controversies of the late 20th century. Yeah. You um you attended college at Notre Dame, I'm sure making your parents extremely happy. Um and when you you mentioned studying in Europe, um for the listeners I should note that you did that on a Marshall scholarship and you attended both Queen's University in Belfast and the London School of Economics. You got two master's degrees. Um, you were also first in your class in high school. When you left college, uh, you got a job at a very prestigious investment bank, Lehman Brothers at the time. And I, I wanted to go through that just to note that you clearly have a drive uh, to win, to succeed. At what point, you know, kind of during 
your early career at Lehman Brothers, did you decide, okay, I'm going to put my education and talents and drive to public service? Well, it's interesting um, that you know, so that the traje- yeah, the, my trajectory to Washington, um, you know, the, the major anomaly on the path was that Lehman Brothers stint for three three years that I spent in the early two thousands at Lehman Brothers, um, because I think you know I I always had a you know a drive to be a leader in public service from as early as I can remember, and I think it was um, honed in my, you know, crowded house, <laughs> growing up in a house of 10 people. Um, you know, I remember the first time I had to do um, a real writing assignment that was hung up in the classroom. And I, I remember, you know, looking up at it proudly. I think it was first or second grade. And we had to write down what we wanted to be when we grew up. And I wrote, I want to be president. And um, and the teacher saved it, um, saved it and sent it to my mother <laughs> years later. Oh, I, I think she it. thought it was... Um, you know, she thought it was bewildering that I had that goal at such a young age. But, um, you know, thinking back about why I would have answered that way and, and, you know, had that conviction about my future, I think it came down to, um, you know, th- two major developments in my in my early years. I was always trying to keep a peaceful house. You know, I didn't like any friction. I wanted to keep help, you know, keep my mom calm, keep my dad, you know, sane and I wanted to keep my you know brothers from fighting over video game joysticks and um, so I was constantly trying to lead the family in some sort of activity to you know distract everyone and keep the peace and second I was an avid and voracious reader you know I couldn't get enough of books and I think you know family legend has it that I began reading at like two years old I I, I don't fully by that. <laughs> but I do remember that by the age of five, I was addicted to reading. And, um, you know, the person I read most about in my um, in my youth was Abe Lincoln. And, um, you know, so much so that I collected books on Abe Lincoln. My grandmother bought me an Abe Lincoln painting for me at a grad sale that I hung on the wall in my room. And so naturally, I just knew at a young age, that's what I wanted to be. I wanted to be president like Abe Lincoln. Um, you know, so I did what any you know, aspiring public servant does. I was that annoying kid who volunteered or ran for every position possible in school from first grade on, from like class rep to class president and eventually student council president. And I took that, you know, zeal with me all the way to college. Um, And, you know, I think in the uh, late late 90s, I thought, you know, to, to, to be a really successful politician or public servant, I needed to get some real business experience or some real, you know, um, financial experience. And at that time, it was the heyday of investment banking and um, the investment banks came um, out to the UK to actively recruit Rhodes and Marshall scholars. And so, so it was, you know, it was, I had that inkling in my head and then I was lured in by, by Lehman to, um, to try out, you know, to experiment um, at a time when they were hiring a lot of, you know, ex-politicians, John Kasich was on was on their management team, and um, and so it, it 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 didn't turn out the way quite the way I thought it would. And um, I think literally from the first or second week I was there, I um, I determined that I had to figure out a way to get to Washington. Um, and I think just 9-11 was a bit of a catalyst in reinforcing that view, that view for me, but I did learn a lot at Lehman Brothers and I would not change anything about, um, the time I spent there because it really laid the groundwork for me to understand the underpinnings of the financial crisis when I later worked on the Hill. Yeah. Yeah. Well, coming from, you know, state of Ohio, uh, family of 10, you've got a leg up on anyone else running for president. So <laughs> I think that's that's a good place yeah. to start. Um, let, so let's, I've adjusted you... my goals, Jim. I've adjusted my goals. <laughs> More realistic expectations. <clears throat> so how did you get to Washington? What was, and, and it, as the listeners know, you had an incredible 11-year run uh, from when you first get to the DSCC uh, as policy director to advising the president of the United States as assistant to the president um, and, and head of legislative affairs. How did you get to Washington and get connected in the DSCC? Well, the short answer is I met a guy in a bar. Um, well, actually, it was two guys. In December of 2002, 
um, in a New York City Irish pub, I was introduced to two political, young political consultants at the time, Josh Leahy and Mark Weiner. I'm sure you know them, Jim. Yes. And I, you know, spent um, a lot of time telling them about my age-old desire to get into politics. And I was, I think I was 26, 27 at the time. And after after a few pints, they actually committed to hiring me at their political consulting firm. If I moved to DC, I did not think, I, I don't think that they thought I would actually <laughs> take, take them up on the offer. But two months later, I called Josh and I told him I'm coming to DC and it, and it took him a few minutes to remember who I was actually, who, you know, I'm like, I'm the girl from the bar that he met in New York city. Um, and they hired me and they gave me a launch pad and, um, and, you know, Mark Weiner was called by Chuck Schumer, um, to do the DSCC policy director job, um, and was, you know, happily situated where he was. And so he pitched me for, for that job instead. And that's, that was my big in. Oh, incredible. That is a great story. Um, while you're at uh, the DSCC, uh, in 2006, Democrats had a great year. Uh, we took back the House. We took back the Senate. Um, and then you transitioned onto Capitol Hill directly, um, working in the office of Senator Schumer. Yes, who is yes. Known, he's known for many qualities. Uh, brilliant, uh, politically shrewd, intense, demanding, loyal mm -hmm. to his staff, voracious in his appetite for media coverage. Um, and working in the office is known, in his office is known to be a pressure cooker. Mm -hmm. So I, what made you successful there? That's a great, a great question. Can I, can I um, first tell you the story of how I came to work for Chuck uh, in the Senate? Because it's a great yes. story. So, um, and it's, it, it's an insight into, you know, how he, makes decisions and how he has a, a, I think, um, you know, impeccable instincts about what will, what, like who will work and who won't work in his operation, um, given the intensity, um, uh, you know, of his, you know, uh, surrounding his political leadership and his, his, uh, management style. Um, it was the night before the 2006 election and, you know, uh, uh Senator Schumer was the DSCC chair at the time. And he took the senior staff of the DSCC out to dinner at his favorite Chinese Chinese restaurant on the hill. And he went around the table at the, towards the end of the dinner and asked us all to give our, it was about, there was about 10 of us there, and he asked us all to give our prediction for how many seats we would pick up. And um, the tiebreaker, I remember, was the, the, was the percentage vote that Senator Ben Nelson <laughs> secured in his reelection. <laughs> uh, he was pretty, pretty much a shoo-in. I was one of the last to answer because I was sort of sitting at the end of the table. And, um, you know, I didn't, I didn't know Chuck very well. He, he didn't interact with me much because I wasn't on the fundraising side of the DSCC, um, which is where he spent most of his time. And, and, um, but I could see that with every answer, um, Chuck was looking more and more forlorn. Um, you know, we didn't really expect to flip the Senate that year, if you remember, Jim. Like, we had 44 seats going into the election, and there was a lot of tough states and a lot of challenger candidates um, on That's our right. side. Um, so my colleagues were answering honestly and, and somewhat conservatively, and the answers were hovering around, you know, 48 seats, 49 seats. Um, and, you know, I could see Chuck was getting more, more and more um, agitated. But so when it got to me, I wanted to make him feel better. Um, so I just <laughs> asserted that we were going to win 51 seats. And I That's like blindly. <laughs> yes. And I blindly guessed that, um, you know, Ben Nelson would get, you know, 65% of the vote or something like that. And, um, and you know, he perked up and then he was the last to answer. And he, he said, I agree with Katie. We're going to get 51 seats. And. Um, so he ended up driving me home that night with his with his um, driver, and he was asking me, you know, he, I was, you know, I, I, it was the first time really I was on his radar um, screen, and he was asking me what my plans were post election. And at that time, I was planning to go work for John Edwards' presidential campaign. And I remember the car was stopped in front of my house, and he turned around in his seat when I said that, and he said um, that he thought that would be a big mistake and that I should, that I should transition into a Hill job since I'd never worked on the Hill before. And he said, you know, I'm going to have my chief of staff reach out to you. And I think that, um, when it was finally determined that my, 
my guess was accurate. <laughs> it was 100% <laughs> accurate. Uh, I think I got, you know, I hit the 51 seats on the nose. And then I, I think I actually got the Ben Nelson guess correct too. Um, I think he must have concluded that I had some political genius in me. Um, and that coupled with the fact that he had just secured the majority in the Senate meant, meant that he was going to have some new staff opportunities to fill. So he reached out again and told me he wanted me on board. And I was 30 years old at the time. And he made me deputy staff director of the Joint Economic Committee for my first ever congressional job. And then elevated me to legislative director about nine months later because he had an opportunity to backfill his legislative director. And, you know, I have to say that I learned very early on, I, essentially from that, that night, um, asserting the outcome of the 2006 election um, that, you know, Chuck is probably one of the most skilled communicators on the planet. And, um, you know, but unlike some of his competition in this space, his, um, his message and press strategy is truly backed by, you know, values and principles that are, have been consistent over the course of his life and unassailable. Um, he's also a total workhorse, and so he puts a high, high premium on efficiency, and particularly efficiency of communications. So to succeed in his operation, you need to meet him on that plane. You know, you need to lead with integrity at all times. You have to know your shit. You have to communicate it efficiently, and you have to be very direct in providing him guidance that helps him you know, maintain his, his long history of consistently defending his values in a ever evolving political climate. Um, and, you know, it working for him is like going through some, a pretty intense boot camp. Uh, and I think, you know, that those early months and years working for Chuck, it positioned me, uh, you know, very well trained me very well, not just for the job that I ended up having in the white house, but for this, um, you know, this C-suite job that I have at Hilton. Yeah. Well, and, his office is known for producing ninjas uh, staff wise i mean to your point about it being a boot camp i mean people who succeed in in senator schumer's office can succeed anywhere um let like me <laughs> uh let me ask you about uh the difference in doing policy at the ds um and policy as a legislative director on the hill and at the you know and at a you know, the jec etc Oh, yes. So policy at the DS, you know, is campaign policy versus, you know, legis actual legislative policy on the Hill. Um, they're, you know, vastly different in terms of the content that you're providing to your audience. I would say, you know, campaign policy is the, the soundbite, the headline that encapsulates your, your, your position. Um, and you know, legislative policy is you know, you've got to think about all of the implications uh, implications, sorry, of of uh, executing that policy um, across um, you know every jurisdiction in the United States that's um, that's impacted by it. And yet, and yet, um, I think both campaign policy and legislative policy are designed to address a, um, a challenge that the voting public um, has prioritized um, and has demanded from their lawmakers. So I think that you know, you, you're, you're, both are almost always working back from um, a communications challenge. Um, and, but the way, you know, the way you design it and the level of um, detail varies uh, based off of um, what audience you're trying to persuade um, at the moment that you deliver that policy agenda. Um, I would say that the DSCC um, policy training <laughs> that I had uh, was, was, you know, um, essential for my success as a legislative director and that it, you know, I almost got a, you know, crash course in, um, in across all major issue areas in preparing those challenger candidates for their debates and making sure that they were, um, you know, they knew as much as they needed to, to go, you know, down a level or two in a line of questioning around, around key issues across education, national security, um, uh, et cetera. Yeah. The, when you, uh, when you left Senator Schumer's office, you then took on a role in the leadership structure of Senator Harry Reid 
and the the staff direct you were the staff director of a committee known as the Democratic Policy and Communications Committee, and that just seems to perfectly blend what you just described about um, policy needing to address a real concern of the voters. It also needs to work, but you never get policy across the line unless it's communicated well. Um, yes. Yeah. So so talk to me about the the DPCC, what its role was, and, and what you did there. Sure. It, it actually, you know, the DPCC was an innovation of of Senator Schumer's. Um, you know, he we had traditionally, if you remember, we had the DPC, and then we had the War Room in Reed's office, um, and the DPC was the policy think tank, um, you know, that serviced the caucus, and then you know, the War Room was the offense, defense, you know, blocking and tackling the with the media and communicating the you know core messages of the caucus, and and. Schumer identified, um, you know, in the run-up to to um, was it this was this was 2010? Wait, 20, 2012, 2010? I can't remember what uh, when we merged the two. Um, he identified that the disconnect was was holding us back from being truly impactful. Um, given the, you know, we had a a wide variety of of members in that Senate Democratic Caucus, um, you know from purple states, some from red states, and, um, you know, by nature of their home state politics, they had to communicate very, very differently, uh, you know, around a core policy agenda. And we had to be able to accommodate that without um, looking like we were, you know, misaligned across the caucus. Um, so we had, our we had our communications and policy teams sitting alongside each other um, and, you know, co-developing the message and the policy strategy together with the help of, of Lita Reed's um, legislative staff. It was a great model, it's, and they, it still exists today. And, uh, you know, I, it was it's will be one of, I think, Senator Schumer's most important legacies that he, you know, reorganized the Senate leadership around that kind of structure. Yeah. And, and during that time, of course, uh, President Obama was in the White House. Uh, he mm -hmm. had just been reelected in 2012, and you made it over uh, down Pennsylvania Avenue uh, as deputy uh, communications director for President Obama. Did how did you how did that come about? And had you been working already in, in part with White House staff while you were on the Hill in your leadership role? Yes, and I think you know this position that I had at the DPCC, the staff director of the DPCC, put me, um, you know, right in direct contact with the um, White House communications team and communications director in particular um, on a, uh, you know, near daily basis because a lot of the, the battles we were fighting required an aligned um, approach um, not just on, you know, around message votes on the floor that were driving home the points we need to make, but um, a, an aligned communications approach so we didn't show any distance between um, the president and um, Democrats on hugely complicated and sort of politically dicey issues, um, like raising the debt ceiling at the time and, um, you know, protecting and defending ACA. And so I developed relationships that um, that I didn't have previously, you know, with the White House team, and as they were expecting a lot of, you know, transition after the first term, uh, um, which is normal in any administration, um, you know, I was on their radar as somebody that they they would um, welcome uh, in their ranks, which was um, opportunistic for them too, because of the, you know, the uh, ability I had to, you know, liaise with with Senator Schumer and Senator Reid directly, and keep that coordination going and that continu continuity going that was so essential to our, you know, our collective success. Yeah. So, I, you know, I can look at your career up to that point, uh, and mm -hmm. I think all of our listeners can hear that and think, okay, she's like the perfect person for that role and others at the White House. Like, as I said, ninja level, black belt, of course, <laughs> right? Of course. I think you're giving but, me too much credit. Uh, no, 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 no. But, uh, but uh, what I'm leading up to is when you, you know, showed up to work uh, you know, on that first day, yeah. were there, you know, were you nervous and oh, yes, how did you overcome yes. it? I was very nervous. I remember my husband dropped me off, um, 
a couple of blocks away. <laughs> I was very nervous. I was excited, nervous. Um, I, you know, I had, I think I'd only been in the White House a couple of times before my first day. I didn't know what to expect, but, you know, I was um, reporting to a, a wonderful person who has, you know, always looked out for me from my early days in Washington, you know, Jen Palmieri, and um, she really you know, eased, um, you know, eased the transition for me coming in and, and uh, made it a lot of fun. But I remember I got dropped off about half an hour early um, and just walked around um, or walked around the White House and just, you know, couldn't believe that I was about to walk in to start a job there. And um, I just couldn't believe it. I was, you know, I was ecstatic. And, um, you know, just the, the, the energy you, you feel when you walk through those doors. And, um, you know, I was, I, I, everyone was coming by my office the first day to introduce themselves to lots of reporters. And, you know, I just felt very nervous, like, how am I going to live up to the legacy of so, of so many um, talented um, staff that came before me? And, um, but, you know, I, I developed a, a you know, I learned pretty quickly. You don't even have time to, to to dwell on those points, as you know, Jim. Like the issues start coming fast and furious, and then, um, and then you're in the game. It was it was very exciting time for me. And so, uh, give us, if you can, a, a day in the life or a, a week in the life in White House comms. Okay, so um, let's see. I think it's every day you wake up. Um, having to expect that your to-do list from the day before has to be ripped up <laughs> and um, and just you know recreated because the the unexpected issues that you're that you're you know, you're expected to wrestle with change day to day um, and and because the twenty four seven news cycle is the way it is um, you can't really take anything for granted. You have to take every incoming inquiry or, you know, any, um, uh, you know, narrative that might be misconstrued online um, as a serious, you know, potential reputational risk for the president and for his team. And, you know, so it required a, you know, always on vigilance um, and, you know, always on uh strategic uh, thinking or strategic planning around how you were going to uh, tackle a, a communications challenge, a communications problem. And then in the, in the um, background of that, um, we were given some pretty major, um, you know, goals to accomplish. And one of them was aligning the entire administration behind a like centralized message campaign to defend the president's you know, economic record and all of the, the, you know, very serious decisions he had to make early in the administration to, you know, literally save the economy um, and how those decisions played out over time so that the American people really understood what, what the trade-offs were and how, um, you know, the economic recovery was, was um, uh, taking place um, in those years of his second administration. Um, the, sorry, in the in the second half of his administration, and so you had you had a, a playbook we were we were running that we had to um, you know deliver on um, on the president's behalf um, and make time to prioritize that. Um, and so you know, working together, we did a lot of we had a lot of dividing and conquering. We had a lot of um, you know all around athletes in that press team who were you know day to day supposed to be handling a particular. Um, beat of reporters or a particular um, um, area of topics, but were often flexing um, across all of the communications challenges and looking for advice or guidance on how to, um, you know, shape their arguments. And and the benefit of me having come from that policy legislative director background was that sort of, you know, well steeped enough in the issues to be able to, um, you know, quickly um, help them shape stories as um uh, a resource inside the communications department. Yeah. Something that's so unique about you is m most people in their political or their um, government work tend to go either a policy track 
or a communications track. And sometimes you'll find people in comms, let's say, who say, oh, I, I don't do policy. Or uh, yeah. likewise yes. on the other side, right? Yeah. I don't do comms. Mm -hmm. um, you then went on to become assistant to the president and head of the Office of Legislative Affairs at the White House. So when the president, who himself served in the Senate, needed guidance or uh, intelligence, a, a strategy for navigating Capitol Hill, you were the person that he turned to. Tell me about having sat in both offices, right, comms and the Office of Legislative Affairs. Talk to me about how they are alike and how they are different. Because I know for a fact, having been in one of them, that they sometimes frustrate one another. Yes, <laughs> yes, and that's and you know that as you know as you know that's the same you know that's the same dynamic you see on the hill that there's a lot of friction between you know the press shop who, who are you know constantly pressured day in and day out to you know, feed the beast, and then the the ledge teams, the legislative teams who tend to be more risk averse because they want to protect their negotiating space and you know protect their um, negotiating partners um, and not want to get out ahead of um, of the story so that they can um, you know uh, preserve some safe territory for actual you know bipartisan deal making um, yeah you know, I was lucky in many ways because I was well trained to mediate the two worlds. You know, I married our communications director <laughs> in Schumer's <laughs> office when I was legislative director. I, you know, I um, I spent many years, you know, during our engagement and he also was our communications director in the DPCC, Brian. Um, so I spent many years during our engagement and early married life, um, you, know, uh, you know, fraternizing with the enemy. <laughs> um, but, <laughs> But also, you know, in in close communication um, with the person leading the press and comm strategy, and understanding what their immediate demands were, and working to try to both address them while still, you know, protecting the integrity of the policymaking uh, legislative process. And that was, you know, I learned a lot from Brian on that, and and also learned how to be less risk averse on the press side. And I think, um, you know, that that trained me well, not only for the White House job, but for the role that I'm playing uh, here at Hilton. Yeah. Um, and I would so say, I would say at the Obama White House too, um, the, that there was less friction between the communications um, shop and the legislative shop than I experienced on the Hill. And I think that, um, you know, that it was because the of the, you know, the real relationships that the ledge team built with the, the press team and kudos to the press team for Obama. They really, those, you know, those young folks who managed their issues um, in lower press really wanted to learn the issues and took the time to spend with the ledge team to um, make sure that they were well briefed so that they could hold their own with the reporters that, you know, sat a couple feet feet away from them. Yeah. And when you... Um, were then leading legislative affairs. There were a number of priorities that uh, you all pursued and succeeded upon. Tell me, given that you had spent so much time on Capitol Hill, uh, knew it really well, was there, you know, did you come to perceive it differently? Did you, you know, what did you learn about Capitol Hill from the perspective of being at the White House? That is a great question. Um, the advantage of being arm's length, um, I really got to see how really the you know the twenty the twenty four seven the media environment and social media environment, and also the increased fundraising pressure on you know those on members of Congress, um, really made it. Impo you know, almost impossible for for lawmakers and for much of their support staff um, to spend a lot of time learning and understanding very complicated policy issues and invest in the time it takes to coordinate, you know, with the agencies and experts across the administration. Um, and I didn't fully appreciate that when I was inside the Senate, um, but when I was, you know, inside the White House and had more exposure to those agency experts and, you know, longstanding, um, you know, uh, issue 
advocates that were you know that that were resources to the to the hill um i that yeah you know i i started to see those trade-offs and and what they meant for um you know for policy making in general and i think we see that you know a lot of of that today how that how that plays out and manifests itself at both the white house and in the senate you were among very senior aides advising the principals that includes the president, the vice president, two different Democratic leaders in the Senate. Very few people attain those heights, let alone on both ends of Pennsylvania Avenue. It also is historically uh, pretty male-dominated and white male-dominated at that, um, including uh, the men who you were reporting to, uh, except, of course, for President Obama. Can you talk about what it was like being in those rooms Um as one of um, a few number of women voices? You know, Jim, interestingly, I was never very gender conscious when I worked in the public sector, um, but I was acutely aware of the statistics and the stories um, that I heard from my colleagues. And then I became more aware of of the, you know, uh, gender differentiation when I en- entered into the private sector after my public sector service. And that is something... I now reflect on a lot looking back from the you know the vantage point that I have right now in order to you know better understand if my experience had to do with my my specific principles and their leadership style or if it is just you know one of the many virtues of working for and with progressives you know both um both Senator Schumer and Reed were I would say tough but fair bosses and their expectation their expectations were equally high across male and female staff and both of them, you know, I think made bets on me to do big jobs as a young woman before I was arguably ready for them on paper. And so I, I always set out to prove to them that they had made the right bets. And Senator Sch- Schumer, you know, is known to be a very consultative decision maker. Like he wants to hear everyone's feedback and recommendations before he makes a decision. And so with him and, and, you know, the room around him, it was never a question of having to fight to be heard in a room full of guys. You know, he always made it a point to seek my guidance if I wasn't naturally offering it. Um, on top of that, I think he, you know, takes great interest in his team's personal life. I think he has a reputation um, for being a matchmaker, for example. And, um, you know, he's a, he's a huge champion of family creation. So you never really felt like starting a family was going to be a career setback working for him, which is, you know, I think um, something that's un- un- unusual to say about, um, you know, a male boss on the Hill. Um, you know, because of him, arguably, I'm happily married with three children. You know, he kept my uh, dating relationship with Brian a secret for a significant period of time, which gave us the space to really get it off the ground in a stressful work environment. Um, and with Leader Reed, that I think that growing confidence in my capabilities as a, as a female leader was solidified. You know, when he created the DPCC with Senator Schumer's help, he entrusted me to run it and had um, several of his se- senior male staff reporting into me. Um, but he created the conditions from the very beginning that allowed that to be successful. You know, he gave me the platform, the validation that you know, not only greatly expanded my relationships with with lawmakers in both chambers, but really set me up to make that um, tr- transition to the White House. So I would say that by the time I got to the White House in 2013, I had you know the benefit of not really being very conscious of my gender um, at all. And by that time, you know, President Obama, as you know, Jim was surrounded by a female senior advisors. You know, Susan Rice, Lisa Monaco, Sylvia Burwell Matthews. Kathy Rumler, Alyssa Mastromonaco, Jen Palmieri, Valerie Jarrett, Tina Chen, the list goes on and on. Um, so not only was I in good female company in the West Wing, I often think about uh, how humbling it was that, you know, he trusted me, somebody brand new to his team, um, to you know, devise a new strategy around his his congressional relationships and to execute on it, and how reinforcing it was that he sought out my voice when I didn't feel comfortable offering it as a relative newcomer. And it was intimidating, you know, the, the, my first few months there. Um, but then again, too, the thing I think I'm most grateful for looking back is how much personal support he provided me as I was going through, you know, a, a very challenging process of trying to start a family, you know, doing, you know, 
you know, doing my IVF shots in the White House doctor's office in between meetings, experiencing the ups and downs of you know, disappointing doctor's visits, and then ultimately going into emergency labor in the West Wing. Um, you know, I think I think he actually knew it was going to happen that day um, because we were doing calls in his office on the Iran deal, and my my feet and ankles were so abnormally swollen <laughs> that I had to prop them up in midair, and he told me that I should go to the doctor because he didn't think it looked right to him. And less than an hour later, I was, you know, I went into emergency labor at 31 weeks pregnancy. And there's this this photo that Pete Souza, you know, took of me bringing the twins to the Oval Office when they got out of the NICU seven weeks later on their actual due date. And you can see me like wiping tears away in the background as, you know, President Obama was walking into the office holding the boys. And it was such an emotional moment for me because it was you know, such a hard journey to have those babies, but I felt like he was, you know, cheering me on and coaching me the whole way. And, you know, it felt like a shared accomplishment, if that makes any sense. And so, yes, I think I consider myself incredibly lucky, you know, that some of the most influential people in my life were were men who never let me feel disadvantaged because of my gender, who never, you know, um, not only, you know, n never allowed me to think that starting a family was going to be a career setback, but who who rallied and, and cheered me on along the way, and who I credit, you know, for shaping the confident, you know, working mom boss that I am today. That's incredible. And, and what about today? Um, you know, you mentioned Brian Fallon, your husband. Um, you are a famous Schumer couple, um, one of several that I know Senator Schumer takes uh, great pride in. Um, I think he's up to like 13 or 14 now. Oh, yeah. Maybe I think you're more. Right. Yeah. yeah um, <laughs> I think it's double digits. Um, you know, Brian and you are both um, such successful people with demanding careers. And I should just note, you know, he, Brian, after working for Senator Schumer, worked at the Department of Justice, was press secretary for uh, the Hillary Clinton campaign, is a regular uh, commentator on uh, CNN, today is the executive director of Demand Justice, so, uh, and I want, which is dedicated to making sure the Supreme Court is uh, fair and, and reasonable. Um, I, just, I want to mention that because you both are so busy and have such high profile, high stress, demanding jobs. How do you divide and conquer life together, and how does that inform uh, how you lead your team at Hilton? Oof. Well, <laughs> I wish I wish I had some smart tips to share on the subject, but the truth is, Jim, I think it is just a messy business, and you know, every day is a new adventure in parenting. In parenting. And I have such a major appreciation for it. It is so much harder than I thought it would be. And, um, you know, I'm a perfectionist. And sometimes I think I'm not naturally good at parenting, which has been a hard thing to reconcile. And I'm not sure how my mom and dad did it with all eight of us in my family. Um, so I, I guess I would say that as a couple, what we have found that has worked well is when we lean into what we like to do and what we're good at as our prominent parenting roles, if that makes any sense. So for example, Brian is really good at, you know, planning experiences, events and activities. And, you know, that could be a legacy of his advanced roles that he played right out of college for presidential campaigns. So he's, you know, generally speaking, in charge of birthday parties, the extracurriculars, you know, the Disney trips, um, the you know, weekend rainy day activities. And, you know, meanwhile, I'm really good at multitasking. And, I love online shopping. <laughs> so, you know, virtually everything we consume in the house is delivered via Instacart, Amazon Prime, or Grubhub. And I have it down to a science at this point. Um, and as far as my team at Hilton goes, I, I, you know, I think I try to purposely expose them to some of that messiness, some of my messiness, um, so that I can create that sort of accept acceptable flexible culture inside our own team, which is predominantly comprised of young women. And, you know, I encourage my team not to try to strike a balance between family and work, which is what we're told to do and um, what we read about all the time, uh, you know, especially our new moms here, because I think when moms try to strike a balance, they will always feel guilty. They'll always feel out of balance if they're trading off any time with their kids for work. 
So rather, I think it's less stressful to try to achieve work-life integration and make that acceptable as part of your work culture if you're managing a team. You know, like do your grocery shopping online at work like I do. You know, you leave early to pick up the kids and spend, you know, a few hours with them at home before you go back online at odd, odd hours to answer emails. And then I think most importantly, like just be collaborative and transparent with your colleagues and with your parenting partner at home. So when you know, unexpected home or kid emergencies arise, arise, you have that, you know, that team that backs you up instead of having to leave issues or projects hanging, which could just create more stress. So that, you know, that always on integration, I think is important. Um, and, you know, never putting pressure on yourself to, to strike, you know, the right balance, because in this day and age, I don't think there really is such a thing. You know, you started that answer by saying, I don't have good tips, but you gave a lot of good tips in that <laughs> answer, um, I, which I personally appreciate because I am always, this, uh, to your point about it being a work in progress, I am always looking for better ways uh, <laughs> to do it. Well, I have some good books to recommend to you. That's a whole nother podcast. <laughs> <laughs> right, I will follow up with you on that. Let's talk about Hilton. It is uh, a Fortune 500 global company with 169,000 employees worldwide. Um, you are going through a crisis right now. The, the industry along with, I mean, the economy writ large, but certainly your industry is in a crisis caused by COVID. Um, what skills that you developed during your political and government career are you utilizing day to day at Hilton. Wow, I could go. I can go on and on. I, I you know, the biggest surprise to me, Jim, was how much of my of what I did on the Hill translates into my role here running corporate affairs at Hilton. I thought it was going to be a drastic leap, um, and that you know that that. There was there weren't going to be too many corollaries between you know my past life and my my current life, but it, but it, you know I was I'm I was very relieved to discover that on you know on on near daily basis I'm applying what I learned on the Hill and in the White House um, to this role here at Hilton. I mean what I what what I do in my job running corporate affairs is essentially you know run a campaign on behalf of Hilton's reputation globally. Um, and that function becomes more important during a crisis because uh, during a crisis, you know, more consumers are paying attention more closely than ever than to how that how you know these companies are responding um, during this pandemic, even when we're you know facing our own economic difficulties, that we're prioritizing, you know, you know, protecting and um, strengthening strengthening the communities around our hotels. You know that that gets noticed, and you know. All of the um, you know day-to-day -day blocking and tackling of the communications issues that come our way um, is you know equally important to the sort of long-term goal of establishing you know the brand um, from a consumer standpoint and building that incremental loyalty. And it's the same you know dichotomy that you have <laughs> in politics, where you have to you know fight the day-to-day -day reputational fights, but look out for the you know the long-term brand and electoral. Um, viability of your principle. Um, and so, you know, it's, it was a great um, uh, practice run in politics for this role in Hilton. And I, I you know, I, I, I do think that, you know, political aides and, 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 you know, senior leaders on the Hill and in the White House are really well trained for the, for these roles across corporate America, particularly now when, you know, reputation is critically important to the commercial viability of companies. Yeah. You you report directly to CEO Chris Nassetta, which I could see being very, you know, corollary to reporting directly to the president yes. or a senator, yes. right? Yep. Um, mm -hmm. You also need the team to succeed. And you've got, you know, team members all over the world, all different uh, cultures, backgrounds, probably some different languages. Um, Tell me how you manage that team in a way, since, and I'm just going to call her name out since you mentioned her. Um, Jen Palmieri was a mentor of mm -hmm. yours. 
and mm-hmm. the senators and the president helped mentor you and, and set you up for success. Um, how, you know, how do you translate some of those things to make sure women on your team, people of color on your team, junior members of your team, right, that they have the space to have their voices heard and, and succeed uh, when given the opportunity? Yes, I mean it's a great question. That you know, the, the thing that um, that I really appreciated, um, you know, growing up through the through you know my, my political professional life, I the thing that I really appreciated and and, um, and recognized as um, a value add was the constant communication that um, I benefited from from you know senior from our. Principles to senior leaders across these organizations, and that transparency of information um, was invaluable, especially in politics, where you need to have the context to be able to deliver um, on the right strategy or the right, you know, um, con- you know, content or products that you're being asked to, to, to deliver on. Um, that is just as critically important inside Hilton, and I think you know one of the things that we can take for granted when you're when you're physically co-located with each other is um, that you know because you're in the same building um, you're getting access to the same information that um, uh, you know provides you with that context and and helps you you know deliver um, against the shared goals of the enterprise and you know one thing I've sort of discovered during during COVID is that um, you know a lot of my team has commented commented to me that the communication flows are are much more transparent and um, you know aggressive. I would I, just, I would say, and that they are they're benefiting um, from that just by virtue of, of the fact that we're trying to stay constantly connected through you know video conferences, um, WebEx teams, and things like that. Um, and you know. Prior to COVID, I would do things like have open open house um, office hours where I would allow all of our team members, including across the globe, to sign up for half hour increments to spend time with me and talk to me about anything on their mind, anything about um, their their roles that they would like to change or need learning and development opportunities they want to take advantage of. And I I noticed that the participation in those office hours started falling off um, late last year, and I think it. You know, it was a sign of the fact that everyone was too busy <laughs> to spend the half an hour to plug in um, and think about their, um, you know, their journey at Hilton and their future career path. Um, well, now the feedback I'm getting when we've broken down a lot of our silos and had to, you know, have have to be real, a lot more efficient and nimble in our communications with each other, um, that you know, my team loves being able, being called upon to um, pitch in. And be part of efforts outside of their core um, activities or core function, so that um, you know they feel like they're developing skill sets that they um, didn't have pre-crisis, and they feel like they're meeting and interacting with um, folks across the business that they didn't have exposure to pre-crisis. So one of the great learnings for me as a manager um, over the last couple of months is that you know I need to um, you know do a better job allowing for those, you know, cross-functional opportunities and keeping our communications from the top as transparent and clear as possible. Um, in politics, it's a, it comes a little bit more naturally because, you know, as you remember from the White House, Jim, like every morning you have that morning huddle to talk about, you know, the goals of the day, what issues you have to address for the day, and that, that information gets cascaded across the White House or across that Senate office almost immediately. And in these large matrix corporations, um, you know your your teams can go months without without learning um, about you know the the um, context be, behind the problems that they're um, having to solve or the projects that they're having to manage, um, and that it, you know that can hold them back from you know truly delivering um, above and beyond what they're what they're um, at being asked to do. So I would say that. I continue to learn how to be a better manager every day. I think this crisis has opened my eyes to a few new opportunities, um, but I'm near constantly drawing from from my uh, political uh, experience and, and applying it here. And I think, you know, I hope Hilton has benefited from that. 
Well, uh, that's extremely helpful. And and speaking of efficient communications, I want to be efficient with your time. Um, <laughs> I have a couple of recurring segments of recurring sure. questions that I like to yeah. ask people. Um, one is called In the Vault. And it's uh, if you could tell me a time when you royally screwed up at work, um, you knew you did it. Uh, what did you learn from the experience and how did you recover? Okay. So I think the time that sticks out for me is the, you know, I wish I could do it all over again, <laughs> was uh, my first week in the job as head of ledger affairs for Barack Obama. And it was also the first week um, in the job for his new front office assistant. Um, and it was the first time that um, Speaker Boehner was coming to see, to meet with President Obama in my new role, but to talk about um, you know, the prior priorities for that, you know, coming year. And, you know, it was on the calendar. Um, you, Speaker Boehner was a little bit early and um, President Obama was in the Oval Office with Defense Secretary Hagel at the time. And both his front office assistant and I were reluctant to pop our, you know, head in and tell him that Speaker Boehner had arrived. And then the meeting time arrived and we were still nervously discussing whether or not we should slide a note under the door. <laughs> um, uh, the, the front office assistant's uh, predecessor wasn't around for us to ask and I didn't want to interrupt the president and Secretary Hagel. For all I knew, they were, you know, discussing a very sensitive uh, national security matter. So I just ended up hanging out with Speaker Boehner and his chief of staff, Mike S Summers, in the cabinet room, I would say for a good 30 minutes. And, and, and Speaker Boehner was a great sport about it. And actually, we spent a lot of time um, getting to know each other, which was was hugely helpful for me in my new role. But then when yeah, the president finally, yes, yes. Um, then when the president finally, finally came out of the Oval with Secretary Hagel and realized that he that he was 30 minutes late for um, his meeting with Boehner, he was visibly upset. Um, he apologized profusely to the speaker and asked, you know, why didn't we just come in there and tell him that Speaker Boehner was there? And then I got a, a, a pretty good talking to after after Boehner had left. But, you know, President Obama is always very kind. Um, but I could tell that, you know, I had made a big mistake. But I learned from the experience that, and he also welcomed me to always walk into the Oval if I needed him for anything. So that sort of established the boundaries or, you know, the lack of <laughs> lack of boundaries early on. And it was a good learning experience for me. Um, you know, he was really keen on, um, you know, elevating his relationships with, with senior leadership across Congress, particularly with the Republican leadership. Um, and so he, you know, he set that expectation straight with me on um, in that moment. And, um, and, you know, I think uh, I benefited from that learning experience. Yeah. Uh, I, I can, you know, feel when people tell me these stories, I feel for them. Uh, because like, I put myself <laughs> in that moment. Um, yeah. But you know what, you end up with walk in privileges to the Oval. That's mm -hmm, pretty, mm -hmm. that's pretty great. Um, yeah, exactly. Uh, cloakroom chatter. Without naming names, tell me a story that made you think, I cannot believe that just happened. Cloakroom chatter. Hmm. Can I can I um can I adapt this to oval oval office chatter? Please do. Yes. Okay. <laughs> um so the first story, the first story that comes to mind when you say, I can't believe that just happened involves involves me. Um in my early days of pregnancy. I'm sharing a lot of personal stories with you on this podcast, Jim. Um, <laughs> it's okay. Uh, well, this is, a, this is a little, um, a little embarrassing, but, um, um, but when I was, you know, in the early days of pre pregnancy, I was working long hours and I didn't have time to get maternity clothes and I was sort of pushing the limits of my current wardrobe. Um, and it was December and we were whipping votes for something at the time. I think it was the CR um, it was 2014, and I was in the Oval Office with the president. He was making calls at his desk, and I, you know, I sat down somewhat abruptly on the couch in the Oval to mark up the vote list based off of the feedback he was getting on his calls. And I just heard this loud ripping noise, and I reached back behind um, my my waist, and I realized that the back of my J. Crew skirt had ripped all the way up uh, to the waistband, yeah. <laughs> and, the, uh. and the president. Um, 
I think heard the noise too, but I don't think he realized what it was. But he finished his call and he started walking over the door to indicate that it was time for me to to leave, but I couldn't I couldn't get up off the couch. Um, and I tried to, I tried to see if I could turn my skirt around to the front and like put the folder that I had in front of the the rip to walk out, but it was totally hopeless. And by that time, he realized what had happened, and he sent his office manager in. And she was it was funny because she was holding a big roll of black duct duct tape, and she said, you know, don't worry, like we have this black duct duct tape for this reason because the guys split their pants on that couch, <laughs> which <laughs> which begs the question: Is there something structurally wrong with the couch? <laughs> and. Um, <laughs> Home field and, advantage, uh, isn't that what they yeah. call the oval office? <laughs> <laughs> yes. Well, the uh, the black duct tape got me up, back up the stairs to my office, but it was not going to hold the rest of the day, and I couldn't go home to change because we were furiously whipping votes in the moment, and um, we had the White House press holiday party that evening. So Amy Rosenbaum, my deputy, who you know well, gave me a a scarf, a wrap that I you know fashioned into sarong, a, a sarong around my waist, but it was um, super short. So Ann Wall, who's our Senate, you know, OLA lead, who was our Senate OLA lead at the time, gave me her big winter dress coat with like a, a fur collar, and I buttoned that up over my outfit, and I ran to the residence with the call sheets to to pull the president out from the photo line to do more hill calls, and in the call room I had like sweat dripping from my face, and um, the president said, you know, take your Eskimo coat off. <laughs> you know, it's, it's 75 degrees in here. And I, I, I told him I can't. And he said, oh, oh yeah. You know, I, um, and a week later, we had a holiday dinner at the White House. And I was hosting a table with, um, with Eric Holder and Jim Comey. And the president was coming around to greet everybody. And when he got to our table, he just, you know, said, you know, has Katie told you about her wardrobe malfunction in the Oval Office yet. And then he just walked away, leaving uh, the table hanging to hear the story, um, which I then told, but I thought it was funny. Um, <laughs> so, you know, you you live through those embarrassing moments, um, but the moral of the story is that the team comes together. <laughs> that's right. You really <laughs> know who your together. friends are. Yes. That's right. <laughs> Oh, and I wasn't, incredible. and I wasn't the first um, to have a wardrobe malfunction on the couch in the Oval Office. Well, and uh, I just have to note that only with a little, uh, you know, a few additional articles of clothing, you just kept right on going through yes. the rest of the day <laughs> and night. That's incredible. Yes. Uh, okay, last question for you: um, If I were to build a Hall of Fame to staffers and put it on the National Mall and ask you for a nominee, oh who gosh. would? So somebody you've worked with uh, or uh -huh. near that you've observed, who would be your nominee for the Stafford Hall of Fame? And I can only pick one. Oh, the pressure, the pressure. Okay, so I think I, I think my nominee um, to the Hall of Fame would be Joel Johnson. Do you know Joel Johnson? I do, yes. Okay, also a uh, Ohioan and, you know, fellow Cleveland, Cleveland area. Um, so... Joel is probably one of the secrets to my to my success in Washington. Um, he has been a mentor and, more importantly, a sponsor um, of mine since early days, uh, since you know pre Chuck Schumer's office. And I'd have to say, like, he's probably one of the ma main reasons why I got that White House job, which was, I think, you know, the highlight of my. Um, of my career to date, that White House Ledge Affairs job, um, because I, I believe he was pitching me for that <laughs> long before I actually sat in the role. And I think he even pitched me for a vice president candidate at one point um, during the Clinton campaign. I think that was pretty much round, roundly laughed at. But the point is, he is a huge advocate, um, a really important mentor and somebody that I continue to reach out to on a near weekly basis uh, for coaching, life advice, professional advice, um, and just to, um, you know, just to keep perspective, somebody who gives me like a focus, you know, a, a focus group of my own, <laughs> um, of my own, you know, belief system and ideas. Um, you know, he, he imparted some advice on me in the early days of our relationship. And it was to always say yes to coffee with the intern, because you never know when they'll be 
you'll be asking them to hire you someday. Um, and you know, I've followed that. Um, I followed that religiously. I, I, whenever anyone asks me for a coffee or a phone chat or to talk about my experiences on the hill and um, you know ask for advice as they as they navigate their own um, journey, I always say yes. And I've met some amazing people over the last you know fifteen years um, with that um, with that mindset who have gone on to do amazing things and um, and some who are you know really well positioned I think to be leaders in the next administration. Um, so I thank Joel and wherever you are, Joel, um, for that, um, for that advice. And I would, I would, um, gladly sponsor his plaque in the hall of fame. <laughs> well, I know what he looks like, so I can start commissioning the bust right now in bronze. Um, <laughs> He's a, Cl- a Clinton White House alum. He had, yes, I think the deputy right. communications job in the, in the Clinton White House. And and a Senate alum, I should tell you, he was he was yes. at the top of the pyramid um, in um, Senator Daschle's world yes, when I was. was at the bottom of that yeah. pyramid. Um, uh, but look, I, I guess I owe him something as well because you said yes to my request uh, for this podcast, and I mm. I can't thank you enough um, for agreeing um, to it. I've really enjoyed this conversation, and I know our our listeners will as well. So thank you. Thank you, Jim. It's my pleasure, and. Uh, and best of luck to you with your podcast. And I really enjoyed the conversation. Well, friends, the clocks just buzzed four times and the Marine Sentry has left the West Wing, which means this episode of Staffer is officially adjourned. I want to thank you all for listening to the only show created for and about the people who work in government and politics at any level. I do have a quick favor to ask. Please follow, subscribe, and like the show on all of your favorite podcast platforms. Positive reviews are everything in this business, I'm told. And make sure to sign up for episode alerts at staffershow.com and check out Staffer Show on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and LinkedIn. Thanks all.